I met with Dr. Alan Vanuk to get his take on ASCO and colorectal cancer, but also to review papers in other GI tumors, including a historic presentation on biologic therapy of hepatocellular carcinoma. But to begin, Dr. Vanuk commented on several interesting and very pragmatic data sets related to the prognostic implication of number of nodes reported on the pathology colon cancer specimen. The statisticians and pathologists have come to a recognition that 12 lymph nodes is sort of an important landmark to determine if a patient is node negative or node positive. And how do you determine if there are that many lymph nodes? Well, the surgery is felt to be standard, and in general, it's been felt to be either sort of pathologists not doing a thorough search or possibly some biology that some patients just don't have lymph nodes. Well, what happened is the NCCN institutions, which are generally major cancer centers, which may be perhaps more focused, more interplay with the pathologists who are attentive to the guidelines, this looked at NCCN data versus SEER data and demonstrated that NCCN institutions are far more likely to report on 12 or more lymph nodes in a colon cancer specimen which probably makes the case that this is a function of the pathologist and perhaps a bit of the surgery rather than that it's just the biology of the disease in some patients they just don't have lymph nodes. I think just as a reminder that we say that you need 12 lymph nodes to make a decision between node negative or not and that it's generally achievable if your pathologist and your surgeon work together on this. You know, I thought this was really a stunning presentation. Right. This is an indictment of the pathology community at large, I think, because I don't think it's a surgeon responsibility as much as pathology takes time, takes money to look for lymph nodes, and unless they really understand the ramifications of an inadequate nodal report, you just don't find the nodes. And we don't now find this, but for years, we would have tumor board, and they'd report on six nodes, and we'd say, go back and look for more nodes, and with rare exceptions, they'd come back and report on more nodes. I thought it was just really a practical issue because what it means is that essentially, you know, I don't know if it's really still happening now to the same extent, it means that essentially half of the stage two patients are thrown into a high-risk category because of this. That's right. The SEER date, of course, lags a few years behind, and so not sure that it reflects current practice, but it certainly is an eye-opener. But in terms of your point, is it the biology or the pathology? In NCCN, the fraction was 11%. Right, and that argues that it's not biology, but it's, you know, in a subset, maybe it's biology, but for the most part, it's sort of the energy put into finding lymph nodes. So there was 11% NCCN places and then 48% in SEER, as you say. And it's interesting, at ASCO, I was asking oncologists in practice, or half a year stage two cases, less than 12 nodes, and several people said no, because we've really been pushing our pathologists and making them get the 12 nodes. So hopefully, SEER, we're going to see some better data over the next few years. Right. Again, as we said, SEER lags a few years behind the actual data, but it is a wake-up call. And then the other thing is, if you see a patient who has, let's say, eight nodes involved and they're negative, what do you say to them when they say, okay, well, what's my chance of relapse, given everything else in terms of T-stage and everything else is not high risk? Right. So they're in the gray zone, and so the numbers are very broad. I mean, as oncologists, you prefer to have sort of defined risks so patients understand sort of what they stand to gain and what not. 
in a patient with less than 12 nodes, it's a black box. And what you're left to tell patients is, we don't really know, but we have to err on the side of recommending chemotherapy. And if you look at the mosaic data that Degramont updated, one of the groups that got the biggest benefit was the less than 12 lymph node group in stage 2. So either these are a biologically different disease or we're misstaging too many of these patients. Well, you know, still even in the NCCN, they had 11%. So maybe they are the biologic ones. Right. That's possible. Or I think there are technical issues occasionally. But at our institution, I think once a year we have a patient with fewer than 12 lymph nodes. Right. So for practical purposes, if you see a healthy person, 60, 65 years old, again, nothing, you know, raising your suspicion, stage two disease, who has eight negative nodes, what are you likely to do? Recommend chemotherapy. Full Fox? Well, so that's a good question. And the only data applicable is the high-risk stage two data that Degramon has in the subset analysis of the Mosaic trial. And Folfox appears to confer a benefit to those group. In fact, in the high-risk patients he described, most of them had less than 12 lymph nodes. That's what made them high-risk stage 2. Okay, let's switch on to another colorectal issue before we get out into some other GI tumors. There was an interesting presentation. It was a late-breaking abstract number 5 from an EORTC study. Can you talk about that? Right. So this is a very important study conceptually, although I'm not sure that it settles the question. This was the EORTC that took patients who were potentially resectable with colorectal liver mets and randomly assigned them to six cycles of Folfox 4, followed by surgery, followed by more Folfox, versus just surgery. Now, the sort of reason this doesn't really apply to most practices is that I don't think most oncologists would do surgery and then not do chemotherapy in this patient, this patient with stage 4 disease. So what it sort of did is address two issues, neoadjuvant therapy, do you lose the opportunity to resect a patient for cure? The answer is no, you don't, and they show that pretty clearly. About 80% of patients in both arms are capable of getting resected, so you don't lose that window. The outcomes ultimately don't show a benefit for all the patients with chemo versus no chemo. And why is that? It's hard to say. It may be that chemo doesn't confer all that much of an advantage. Probably the reason is the study was underpowered to show the advantage. With the availability of Avastin, they found they couldn't accrue the study, so they curtailed accrual. It was underpowered. The incremental difference in outcome is about what you'd expect with Folfox in the adjuvant setting, stage 3. So, I think it probably tells us what we all assumed was that chemotherapy is of value in curing patients who otherwise aren't cured if you have resection of liver mets. But we all sort of would have practiced that way anyway, at least I would and most of us would. What it informs us is that you don't sacrifice resectability by giving a course of chemotherapy. They also had data on if tumors shrink and extent of response, predicted outcome. And again, these are not the least bit surprising. So what is the design of this perfect study to answer the question, and is it being done? No, the perfect study probably won't be done. But the perfect study would be, I think, six cycles of chemotherapy followed by surgery followed by six cycles of chemotherapy versus surgery followed by 12 cycles of chemotherapy or some permutation on that theme. Now, when you say chemotherapy, with or without Bev? Right. So I think the next trial needs to include the biologics. Now, we'll talk a little bit later 
Very interesting data suggesting that cetuximab may step up and be a good drug in the patient with liver meds. I mean, soft data, hardly conclusive. But I think you could argue a biologic or both biologics with chemotherapy would be a good way to do the study. Now, the problem with Bev, of course, is that you need to stop the bevacizumab at least six and probably eight weeks prior to taking a patient to liver resection, so the timing gets to be problematic. Now, we're talking about people who appear to be potentially surgically resectable, correct? Correct. And so do you think that it is a reasonable non-protocol option, or do you actually use neoadjuvant therapy in that situation? Well, so I think it depends on the nuances. So a patient who, let's say, had a primary stage two four years earlier now has a new isolated liver met, that's a patient I would just take to resection right away and then chase with chemotherapy. A patient who presents with synchronous primary and a metastatic deposit that's resectable, we would lean more towards doing neoadjuvant therapy to get a sense of the biology of the disease. Are we going to subject this patient to a liver resection, and three months later they're going to have extensive peritoneal METs, for example? And there are obviously many gray areas in between. One question would be, what about the patient who's at adjuvant Fulfox, now has surgically resectable liver mets, but not that long, let's say in the year after stopping adjuvant therapy. Right. So that's an unfavorable disease, although on the other hand, some of the mosaic data that Degramont presented showed that patients who progress on Folfox in the adjuvant setting are less likely to get benefit from subsequent chemotherapy. So, I mean, the odds are long, but probably that patient, you would resect their liver mets rather than trusting that they'd get a response to a different chemotherapy, which is If you look at the Tornigan data, not exactly parallel, but the response rate to Fulfiri in patients who progress on Fulfox is about 4%. So hardly likely that you're going to expect a big impact on your therapy. Now, again, some of this is all up in the air because of the biologics with cetuximab, Avastin, you may change the likelihood of impact. But that's the toughest case. A patient who fails Fulfox adjuvant early on, you know they've got a bad disease, but it doesn't mean that you have zero chance, and so that's where you probably have to roll the die. Now, what about paper 4060, which looks at the effectiveness of neoadjuvant therapy that includes BEV? Right. So this is Zelox BEV. You know, this just confirms that with capecitabine BEV and oxaliplatin, you also, as you saw with Folfox and as other data would suggest, you don't lose the opportunity to resect these patients you know, it's hard to say that patients do better because they've gotten Zelox Bev up front, but that with Avastin, you're unlikely to compromise patients in a way that preempts their capacity to get a resection. This is a phase two, and it's probably selected patients, very high response rate of 73%. And so, you know, you have to be cautious, but I think it fits with the data set, which we're also seeing from the bright registry data that Avastin really in general doesn't compromise subsequent treatment options. Now, it looks like they gave six cycles, and then on the sixth cycle, they dropped out the BEV. So how long then would it be from the BEV to surgery? Well, then it depends on when they went to the OR, four to six weeks. And probably six weeks is erring on the side of being too cautious, but that is the practice for most of us. They said five weeks, five to six weeks, I'm sure there was, you know, a rough estimate, but five to six weeks from Bev, and probably that's fine. Certainly, I don't think this is enough data to say we can, with impunity, just go from certain bevacizumab to surgery. 
What do we know about Bev and recovery from surgery, hepatic regeneration? Well, interestingly, you know, lots of reasons to theorize would be a problem, but at least animal models, there's no evidence that BEV inhibits liver regeneration. So let's shift out of colorectal cancer and a bunch of other interesting papers, and I think probably one of the most exciting ones was a late breaker, number one, which was looking at serafinib and hepatocellular cancer. Can you talk about that one? This is a paradigm-changing study. I think we have to be cautious in not over-interpreting the results, but it's dramatic on a number of fronts. So it's a randomized study that looks at placebo versus serafinib. Serafinib is a drug that is approved in renal cancer, kidney cancer, rarely induces responses in kidney cancer, but clearly appears to delay time to tumor progression. Tested in a phase two in hepatocellular with a few responses, a sort of pseudo-promising time to tumor progression and overall survival and brought into this phase three randomized trial. I think many of us really couldn't see the logic behind putting the resources into such a big randomized phase three trial, what is really pretty soft phase two data. One of the issues that they brought out was the biologic basis, and I don't know how much that yeah, came into the this. Yeah, the ERK and the MEC. ERK and, and MEC and RAF. Right, and that's all well and good, but biologic basis generally hasn't panned out, except for Gleevec and GI stromal tumor. I think, to be honest, they may be right on the money, because they certainly guessed right with this drug, but I don't think there's a lot to support it. In the phase two that's been published by Ghassan Abu Alpha, there was discussion of MEC and looking at ERK, and it does hang together, but again, I'm a little hesitant to jump on that bandwagon. Are those substances things that you can test for in tissue with IHC or whatever? Yeah, so the problem is, you know, not necessarily reproducibly. They're still sort of research tools. Right. It's not like you can look for EGFR, which of course is useless for cetuximab or HER2, which is of value right. with trastuzumab. So you want to talk about what they saw? Yeah. So what they see is these are very good patients. So these are child's A patients. So essentially asymptomatic patients who have normal liver function with unresectable liver cancer, half of whom didn't have underlying hepatitis. And again, I think 90% of the patients are accrued in Europe. In the U.S., this would not be representative of most of the patients we see. But in these very selected patients, they showed a profound difference in survival. For this disease, where we failed to show anything impacting survival, 10.7 months in the experimental arm, 7.9 months in the control arm. So the control arm does a little better than we expect patients with HCC to do, reflecting the caliber of these patients, but the experimental arm does much better. You could quibble with it, but clearly this establishes a new treatment standard. Now, the fascinating thing is there are really no responses. You know, you're talking about a couple of responses in the serafinib arm. So this, again, as was seen in kidney cancer, may be the capacity to delay progression as opposed to actually getting regression of tumors. And, you know, those progression-free survival curves were very impressive. There was a big Right, difference. so that's 24 versus 12 weeks. Right, exactly. And that's very impressive, although I'm having a little trouble squaring some of the data. And as more of the data comes out and we get to massage it, maybe it'll hang together a little better. You'll note that the median treatment duration for patients on placebo is 19 weeks. And yet, the time to progression was 12 weeks. So the doctors treated patients on average seven weeks beyond progression with the placebo. 
may have to do with central radiology review and symptoms and the like. But So there's a little incongruity, I think, in the data. But the independent radiologic review shows a dramatic change in time to progression. And since patients with liver cancer generally die as complications of liver involvement, so portal vein involvement into the vena cava, things like that, keeping the tumor from progressing may very well be a major accomplishment. And so this is a very important finding. Now, what do we know about other biologics in this situation, particularly BEV? All right. So there was an interesting poster at ASCO from the group at MD Anderson looking at BEV or Lotnib. And that will look very promising in a phase two experience, not randomized, 17-month median overall survival. The problem with BEV in this disease has generally been the risk of bleeding and hemorrhage. And so variceal bleeds or capsular bleeds have really been an issue. This group of patients from MD Anderson actually were taken to endoscopy, and if they had varices, had varices banded before they were treated on the study. So these are, again, a very sort of cherry-picked group of patients. However, I think that BEV probably is a very promising drug in this disease, You just need to, again, isolate the patients who are not going to get into trouble with it. So these bleeds, is it kind of like what we think happens in lung cancer? You get a big, brisk response and it sort of falls apart? Well, that's a good question. Probably not tumor bleeds as much as the vessels have poor integrity. And I don't think it's like the squamous cell cancer avastin story in lung cancer where the tumors necrose and bleed. I think in the hepatocellular, it may be more that there are varices, are a lot of sort of poorly made blood vessels that are at risk for bleeding. But these are tumor vessels? or No, not? these are not tumor vessels. These are other sites of bleeding. Well, that's interesting. So is there an issue about giving a patient who has portal hypertension? I mean, let's say that you have a patient who has cirrhosis and has colon cancer. Is that a problem? Well, that's a good question. I mean, most patients with liver mets don't get cirrhosis, but... What I'm saying is if you have a patient with colon cancer who you want to give BEV to, but say coincidentally they have cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Right. I would theorize that these patients are at greater risk, as has been seen in a few studies, of variceal bleeds. Now, of course, these patients may have variceal bleeds anyway, but that's probably a group of patients where there's a relative contraindication, at least from what we know so far, to use bevacizumab. I guess the other thing that they brought out at the beginning of this presentation, and maybe you can just comment on, is the worldwide impact of hepatoma and you know how profound it is outside the U.S. Right. So this is a worldwide, it's a huge issue. And again, not to downplay the results, but sub-Saharan African patients don't present with child's class A cirrhosis. These are patients who probably are followed by hepatologists with liver disease who on surveillance have a hepatocellular carcinoma found. However, in Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, this is a major health issue. I think what needs to happen now are studies need to be done in a population that more reflects the actual way these patients present to see if the drug is safe, to see if the impact is the same. It may be greater in these patients. Who knows? I think the other thing about this study, just the way you tracked it out, is the whole issue of how are we going to evaluate biologics and the fact that we could have easily missed this signal if we went on the phase two data. Well, this is a wake-up call for all of us who think we understand how to develop drugs. I mean, what reflects a signal of activity and what doesn't? And this sort of turns us upside down because response certainly didn't predict at all that this would be a meaningful drug. Well, really interesting, and hopefully there's going to be more advances biologically with this disease.
Let's talk a little bit about pancreatic cancer. And there were several papers I asked you to talk about, beginning with 4508, which is a double-blind CALGB trial. Right. So there are two papers presented. 4508 is the CALGB gemcitabine with or without bevacizumab study. We'd seen the results at ASCO-GI, and they were updated slightly. And suffice it to say, the study was closed and patients were unblinded when an interim look showed that it was a futile study. In fact, median overall survival in the combination arm was a little inferior, not statistically, but inferior to the gem alone, 5.9 versus 6.2 months. And that's very distressing because I think there were signals in the pilot study done to lead to this study. Others, including my group, have had very excellent phase two results in pancreas cancer with Avastin. And this study just says, boom, the way it was done in this study didn't confer a benefit. To me, it sort of raises an issue. I personally believe that the reason this and the next study we'll talk about are maybe negative is I think in pancreas cancer, the results of a few institution or single institution phase twos may be much less generalizable than in other diseases. I personally think Pancreas cancer patients will survive certainly based on ancillary services, on nursing care, on interventional radiology, and I think that a center that has a focused effort in pancreas cancer may get better results than the generic community just because there's so many people attending to details. You may buy an extra month or two months, not a dramatic change, but maybe enough to take the median survival of nine months that looked so promising in a phase two and to dilute it down when you lose the dedicated nurse, the dedicated interventional radiologist, etc. And I think that this is a very sobering result. And if you take it in combination with 4509, which is a SWOG gem with or without cetuximab, you're left to say we have to go back to the drawing board and what to do with pancreas cancer. Now, 4509 is interesting because if you look at the numbers, it actually looks more favorable than the gem erlotinib data that has established Tarsiva as one of the acceptable standards. That study was just published in JCO a few weeks ago by Malcolm Moore. The median overall survival was 6.24 months in the gem erlotinib versus 5.91 in the gem alone. And numerically, this study, 6.5 versus 6.0, appeared to favor the cetuximab more, although the hazard ratios didn't show statistical significance. So it's a little bit of statistical wizardry. The gemerlotinib favored with a statistically significant difference by comparing the curves rather than just comparing the median overall survivals. But suffice it to say, we didn't move the ball forward by adding cetuximab. And again, I think this tells us that we need to maybe go back to square one and rethink our whole approach to pancreas cancer. Can you give me an example of a really cool, uh, innovative idea? Well, an idea I thought was cool and innovative until these negative studies. Imclone is doing a study, gem, bev, cetuximab versus bev, cetuximab. So asking the question, do you need gemcitabine at all? You know, I'm not sure that has relevance now that you've had other studies with BEV and cetuximab that are negative, but I think starting with a biologic is one way. At UCSF, we're doing tumor analysis looking for 
predictors, looking for circulating tumor cells. I mean, I think we really need to probably step back and not do phase threes until we have a better handle of what we're doing. You know, in a more macro view, is there any sort of intuitive concept you have about pancreatic cancer that might explain why it's been so resistant to systemic therapy in general? I always had this feeling that it was a big fibrotic mass that agents couldn't get to. Well, I think that may be part of it. I personally think that pancreas cancer tends to get a lot of inflammatory reaction. I think there are a lot of circulating evil humors, cytokines, that cause problems way beyond the metastatic disease. So the hypercoagulability, the anorexia, you know, colon cancer patients are generally really fit until the very end of the road. Pancreas cancer patients are unfit very early on. So I think there's a lot of paraneoplastic stuff going on in pancreas cancer that probably makes these patients just much sicker sort of gram for gram of cancer. All right, let's start buzzing through the rest of these. There was another paper actually by Malcolm Moore looking at more data from that trial that he did. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this looked at KRAS mutations and EGFR gene copy in patients treated with erlotinib. I mean, one of the problems with pancreas cancer is the relative inability to get tumor specimens. We have a study now which are mandating biopsies before patients go on study and we're having, you know, no more than half of the patients are we getting adequate tissue. So I think this is a good effort from Malcolm's group to see if looking at tissue, if there are any helpful predictors. And I guess this is based on what's been seen in non-small cell. Right. And they looked at fish for EGFR instead of immunohistochemistry, and they found a trend in overall survival in KRAS wild-type and EGFR-negative patients. But I think this is exploratory and sort of as enough to generate some hypotheses. We've long thought that RAS was an important marker, but it's a downstream event in these diseases and hard to believe that perturbing RAS is really going to change the disease outcome. And we've looked at a few putative RAS inhibitors that didn't do a lick in pancreas cancer. But I think it's a good example of trying to mine studies for correlative information. So SWOG and CLGB, both negative studies, we actually may stand in the next year to learn a lot from the tissue biopsies, from the serum, from the analyses of these patients. Maybe we'll find a clue in that analysis, even though the clinical results were negative. And I guess, again, going back to non-small cell, and I think pancreatic is to some extent associated with smoking. Have people looked at smoking status in terms of response to erlotinib and pancreatic? That's a good question. I'm not aware of that. I don't know what fraction of it's supposed to be from smoking, but it's not inconsequential, is it? No, I think the epidemiology of pancreas cancer is less clear-cut than lung cancer, but clearly... More patients than not who have pancreas cancer smoke. Let's talk a little bit about gastric cancer. There are a few papers that I want to get your take on. First, the late breaker, 4513, randomized study in advanced gastric cancer. Can you talk about Right. That? I think the main issue with gastric in this study and also the 4514 is the dawning of S1 as a new agent that we'll probably be using in clinical practice. So S1 is an oral fluoropyrimidine that's a mix of tegafur and two inhibitors of the metabolic pathway of 5-FU. It's been used in Japan for years and is now in the U.S. in a pivotal gastric cancer trial, and I expect it'll probably be a marketable agent in the next 
year or two. Its advantage over capecitabine, theoretically at least, is there's no hand-foot syndrome. What's the difference between UFT and S1? Right. Each of them had an inhibitor of one was TOR4 and the other was Tegafer. Same church, different pew. UFT had a different inhibitor than does S1. S1 may be a little better combination. Hard to say. Actually, I don't know if they've ever been compared head-to-head, but more or less, you know, knockoffs one or the other. The news here with S1 was it was tested in a couple of studies. One with S1 versus S1 platinum in gastric cancer. Clearly, the S1 platinum was better than the S1, but S1 alone had a pretty nice response rate in the 30% rate. So active drug combinable with cisplatinum this is a Japanese study. The other Japanese study really is something that's never been done with capecitabine. Compared S1 to infusional 5-FU to arenotecan and cisplatinum. And the S1 versus infusional 5-FU comparison clearly favored S1. So these studies establish a new agent that probably will be used. So that's, I think, the ramifications of that. Sanofi Aventis actually has S1 in the U.S., the pivotal trial in gastric cancer. I believe cisplatinum with 5-FU versus cisplatin S1, if that's a favorable study, I could imagine S1 would become available somewhere in the near future. Interesting. Do you think that it's going to be gastric that's going to get S1 on the market in the U.S.? I would bet so. What about paper 4526 that looked at FUFOX, cetuximab and oxali, first-line metastatic therapy for gastric? Right. You know, I think most of us have long thought that Oxaliplatin was a very good drug in gastric cancer. I think the problem in gastric cancer is that you have no shortage of things that have responses. It's just you don't get enough durable responses. This was a study that looked at Fufox plus Cetuximab and showed a pretty nice response rate. I think phase twos obviously are good for informing the phase three decision. Phase 3 in gastric, there are a few active studies which are looking at the relative value of biologics, oxaliplatin, and I think all of those are helpful. But again, until we get something that really knocks your socks off or get durable responses, it's still going to be a tough disease to treat. In the U.S., there are randomized studies looking at a host of different chemo combinations with biologics to see about if we can get sort of something that stands out. Now, you mentioned in this study that looked at cetuximab with 5-FU and oxaliplatin, the so-called FUFOX regimen, was phase two. Looking at this and looking at other studies that have evaluated cetuximab and gastric cancer, do you feel like there is activity there? Yeah, I do believe that the cetuximab and probably the oral agents, if they were tolerable, do have activity in gastric and upper GI malignancies. We at UCSF, we have a couple of studies in esophageal cancer as well. Again, the problem isn't so much showing activity, it's showing that you really change the outcome for patients. And I think this is the dilemma. Gastric, esophagus, host of treatments that all look pretty good in phase two, but at the end of the day, none of which really have durable responses that make an impact. So let's finish up by talking about esophageal cancer. There are several papers that I wanted your take on. And the first one was the final results of a randomized study that compared pre-op 5-FU cisplatin to surgery alone. Right. So this is a European study that really took eight years to accrue. And I personally think it adds, if you look at the three esophageal studies, or at least a couple of them, there's a meta-analysis 
There's one that looked at preoperative chemo with or without radiation, and then this one that looked at chemo surgery versus surgery alone. I think the sum total suggests that surgery alone is probably not the right thing to do for esophageal cancer. I think chemotherapy up front may be valuable. Chemotherapy radiation may be valuable. In many ways, I think these studies just further confuse an already confused field where different centers will do chemo rads up front, different centers will do chemo up front, different centers will do surgery and then chemo radiation, and arguably some centers may not do surgery at all. So these sort of fuel the fire that tells us we really have a whole bunch of choices for esophagus and none is the dominant, none comes out favorably compared to the others at least enough to make any broad treatment recommendations. In terms of this specific study, though, what was the bottom line in terms of what they saw? 4510, the Boyage study? Yeah. What they saw was a superior outcome for patients who got chemo up front versus surgery alone, both in local recurrence and overall survival. But again, it was a, I think it was 100 patients in each arm, took eight years to accrue, had a mix of squames and adenocarcinoma. But it certainly justifies chemotherapy as a neoadjuvant. Many of us are doing that. I think the problem with interpreting that study is you also have other studies that suggest radiation was of benefit, and the Boyd study didn't look at radiation at all. So in some ways, you have studies that show favorable outcomes, but with very different upfront strategies. What's the usual upfront strategy that you use in a non-protocol setting? Well, we generally do neoadjuvant chemoradiation, and we actually are looking at this case, looking at erlotinib up front in these patients, biopsying pre-erlotinib and post-erlotinib, looking for biologic effects, then doing chemoradiation, and then doing surgery. I think most major centers are taking the neoadjuvant chemoradiation approach and integrating biologics. What chemo regimen, which biologics? Well, we use arenotecan and cisplatinum. Other centers use platinum 5-FU. I think they're perfectly fine, any of those. Folfox is probably as good as well. As I said, we're using an EGFR inhibitor. Other centers are using Avastin. I tend to be shy about using Avastin in esophagus because of the vascular structures, tumor invading into the trachea, the mediastinum. I tend to get nervous about using Avastin in those patients who I think are high risk. They're also going to get radiation to the heart, but perfectly valid to look at. It's just not something our group is doing. Valid to look at. What about biologics off protocol? Yeah, I don't recommend it. I think EGFR is highly expressed in the GI tract, and so It may be that it's a good idea, but off-protocol, I would shy away from either. I think the GI toxicities with the EGFR inhibitors can be substantial. And again, as I said, I think Avastin has some substantial downside potentially in these patients. What did you think about paper 4511 that looked at pre-op chemo versus pre-op chemo plus radiation? They looked at chemo with or without radiation. The radiation was sort of atypical in that they gave three weeks of neoadjuvant radiation, 15 by 200, so 3,000 centigrade. And what they showed was that this was a neoadjuvant approach. Patients didn't lose the opportunity of going to surgery with the neoadjuvant treatment. And again, these were mostly GE junction cancers. So what they could show is that patients didn't lose the opportunity to go to surgery. Ultimately, their survival in the combination arm was about double 
the survival in the control arm, but it didn't reach statistical significance because it was underpowered. There was less local tumor progression in the combination arm, so again, supports the idea that radiation may play a role. But you know, to be honest, I think this just is another sort of fly in the ointment as far as clarifying what to do for these patients. To me, the take-home message is that surgery alone probably is not adequate, but many permutations on the theme would be acceptable otherwise. Maybe just kind of taking a step back in terms of GI cancers in general, you know, including colorectal cancer, if you had to pick the two or three presentations or data sets that came out at the ASCO meeting overall in GI cancers, which one jumped out in your mind? Well, as I said, I think the serafinib paper, the late-breaker serafinib in hepatocellular was the most important result in terms of a drug that has efficacy in a disease that's defied our ability to make an impact and yet a drug that had no real promising or no particular evidence of activity in phase two. So it sort of tells us our paradigm may not work, but here's a drug that is worth putting into other studies, perhaps in other diseases. The other thing, there is some data that we expect in the next few months of serafinib plus doxorubicin that suggests serafinib can be combined with chemotherapy. Is that just safety data or also efficacy? Safety, and we know efficacy that the study was closed early because of a big difference in efficacy between the combination arm versus the doxalone arm. Don't know the data. Need to see it, but certainly on first glance suggests it's combinable with chemotherapy. So to me, that's the upside of VASCO and the sort of challenge of how do you develop new drugs when you don't see the classic responses up front. The downside was the pancreas data, which I think just here we did two more randomized studies. It was good. We accrued these patients very rapidly, answered the question quickly, and we just got the result we didn't expect or were not hoping for. I think that's the sobering side, which is we really need to go back to the drawing board in pancreas. So up news in hepatocellular, I think downside in pancreas. I think colon was holding steady. Probably the most important news on colon was the Optimox 2, which has some flaws in its design and interpretation, but suggests that holidays free of all chemotherapy in patients getting oxaliplatin may not be the proper way to treat patients. Again, that probably was, to me, the only substantial study that actually made me change the way I think about patient care. Any comments on the ACCENT data sets that were presented in colorectal cancer? Right. So ACCENT is a very useful database that looks at thousands of adjuvant patients and looks at sort of a host of issues with the adjuvant patients. So the data presented by Dan Sargent, by Mike O'Connell, sort of tell us some of which we knew and some of which we thought we knew. For example, patients who fail full FOX adjuvant or fail adjuvant chemotherapy don't do as well when they recur as patients who never saw chemotherapy. That sounds probably intuitive. Well, that's the whole issue of survival after recurrence. That's correct. And that was Mike O'Connell's presentation. Right. And Dan Sargent, I think, really informed the issue of how to do surveillance in these patients by showing us that the patients really, after three years, the likelihood of recurrence is really small. And arguably, the value of doing scans and surveillance is really tiny once you're three years out. I think that probably most of us sort of figured that was the case, but he showed it very graphically. I think the problem with the Accent database is it's all data based on non-biologic interventions. 
And when you start getting data sets with cetuximab or Avastin, who knows if any of these lessons will apply. Well, the other thing that kind of relates to the accent presentations was the mosaic presentation that Emory Deep Grammont gave. And a matter of fact, an oncologist this morning was just asking me about the issue of why, because they reported five-year overall survival, and it wasn't quite statistically significant. It was P equals 0.5 something. And therefore, this oncologist was saying, well, what about this thing about three-year disease-free survival predicting overall survival? Why do we still buy into that? How do you answer that at this well, point? Well, I think when you've got very effective downstream therapies, even if they're less effective than they would be in an untreated patient, I think you may dilute the survival. So I think it probably goes to show you that the patients do well enough even with metastatic disease that you need a longer marker for overall survival. I think it's a little different than the stage 2 patients where there was absolutely no overall survival difference at five years, none whatsoever. The lines are superimposable. You're talking about the mosaic trial? Correct. Yeah, but that was the lower risk. Right, the lower risk stage two. But what that tells you is that lower risk stage two patients, if you're going to treat, probably shouldn't get Folfox. I interpret the five-year overall survival not quite reaching statistical significance as being a function of the surveillance and effective downstream treatment. If you follow patients long enough, everybody's going to die, so overall survivals will come out equal at the end. The curves all run together at the end in every study. I'm sort of being glib, but I think, to me, three-year disease-free survival and an almost statistically significant five-year overall survival certainly supports the use of Folfox in stage three. Well, my ever-crowded brain was trying to follow Dan Sargent when he was going through that statistical argument, and I also interviewed him at ASCO. And what I came away thinking was that maybe instead of looking at three-year disease-free survival predicting five-year survival, maybe we should be looking at two-year disease-free survival predicting seven- or eight-year overall survival. Yeah, I agree, and I think Dan would say the same thing. And most of the studies are now looking at two-year disease-free survival. The problem when you get into biologics is what Sargent showed is that every year goes by, patients are still likelier to be cured with chemotherapy than not cured. And so it's not as if you're just delaying recurrence. The problem with biologics is it may be that Avastin or Cetuximab, if they change two-year disease-free survival, may not change five-year disease-free survival. And there may be some consequences of those biologics years later. So, you know, I think the lesson from Accent, it's very interesting, very important work, but probably, I'm not sure it informs our next round of interpretations, because once we get biologics, I don't know that it applies. Well, the other thing about that that was a little bit confusing to me was Mike O'Connell's data suggesting that maybe biologically stage 2 disease is different than stage 3. Can you explain Well, that? and that's sort of consistent with what we've all seen. So it's known for years that a patient with an isolated liver met whose primary was stage 2 is likelier to be cured by liver met resection than a patient who had stage 3 with the same liver met. And so I think it is a reflection of sort of the inherent capacity of the tumor cells to metastasize. So I do think that that confirms sort of what my bias and my interpretation had always been. Again, I think when you start throwing in adjuvant therapy, then it gets more confused and more variables. But I do think stage 2 patients have a better prognosis both from their primary as well as when they develop metastatic disease. Okay, one final question. I want you to try to predict for me what are going to be the top and most hot GI presentations in 2008, let's say at ASCO GI and at ASCO. Oh, 
Good question. Well, we'll certainly see the PACE data, which is negative, and try to get some insight into why panitumumab is different than cetuximab. Are we going to see that? I mean, we didn't see it at this ASCA. Well, we'll see that in Spain, and I think, I imagine they'll put something together for ASCO GI. We didn't see it at ASCO itself. Yeah, it was disappointing. Yeah, very disappointing. And that was because of, like, procedural things? Well, everybody wanted to see that data. Right. I think it was a disservice to the oncology community. Apparently, Amgen released too much information in their press release to satisfy ASCO. I think there may have been some oncopolitics at play there as well. Right. Well, it will be interesting to see that presented, though. Right. So there's that. You know, frankly, I think there won't be that many dramatic studies otherwise. I think the main study we're waiting for is CO8. Yep. And the NSABP colon adjuvant. And I'm not sure when to expect that. It accrued very rapidly. Patients had a lot of stage two patients, so there may not be that many events, but we may see that by ASCO next year. And what do you think that's going to show? Well, I think it's going to be a negative study. All right. Well, I got that recorded. <laughs> I've gotten divergent predictions on that one. Yeah. Well, what do well, I we'll know? We'll see. But you may be right. You asked, and that's what I think. Yeah. For all we know, it could make things worse, I guess. Well, no, I don't think so. It would be wonderful if it's another advance, but I'm pessimistic. Well, I'm predicting another Herceptin because I'm an optimist. Yeah, well, it could be. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Dr. Vanuk commented on the surprisingly positive findings of the Phase three trial of serafinib in hepatocellular carcinoma, and in fact, Dr. Saltz was one of the investigators who had studied this agent in a Phase two trial in this tumor. I went back to Len for his take on the plenary data set of the Phase three trial of serafinib. What happened with serafinib is on the Phase one study, one of the patients had hepatocellular cancer, somewhat atypical in terms of presentation, but having reviewed it, I really do think it was hepatocellular cancer, and that person had a response, and that's what really led to the question. So we did a multicenter phase two study to assess for activity, and the findings there was that there was anti-tumor activity, albeit modest, and that there was a relatively low response rate, but a number of patients seemed to have stable disease for longer than we might have expected. Now, of course, you can't really interpret that very much in a non-randomized study. And so to their credit, the serafinib folks decided to go forward with a randomized placebo-controlled study. I'm curious, when you saw your own data there, because it was like, what, 130 or 140 patients. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty big study. Right. Did you think that it really wasn't that exciting, or did you think it was exciting? Well, exciting is a relative term. Did I think that there was some reason to believe there was some activity? Yes. Do I think that serafinib solves the problem of hepatocellular cancer? No, and I still don't. What they did in the SHARP study is they showed in a randomized fashion that there is a modest but significant improvement in overall survival in good performance status, good liver function patients. Remember that this was basically restricted to child's A, so these are not people that have a lot of cirrhosis. And that's interesting and that's important, and I think that that will become the new standard against which we're going to have to compare future treatments. But let's keep perspective. This doesn't cure anybody. This doesn't solve the problem. It gives us a relatively non-toxic therapy that we can offer to patients with hepatocellular cancer. And that's exciting simply because we haven't seen much show of activity in this disease before. We've looked at doxorubicin. We've looked at platinum combinations. We've looked at arena tecan 
and everything is fairly modest and has a fair amount of activity. I think one of the major things that this might help us do is move away from doxorubicin as a treatment and certainly as a regulatory standard for hepatocellular because I think that idea really got started many moons ago back in the 70s when a study published out of Uganda with very questionable ability to accurately assess response reported a sky-high response rate. And attempts to duplicate that in modern times have not been successful. So doxorubicin really is not that active a drug in this disease, and it's a toxic drug in this disease. And it's a drug that's hepatically metabolized, so giving it to people with varying degrees of liver dysfunction is something that we have to be very uncomfortable about. So I think that moving to serafinib as a baseline for treatment for this disease will be a step forward, but it's a step on a journey that's still got an awful lot of miles to go. Yeah, I guess I was particularly interested in the research implication. This is something that Alan commented on, which is the question of with biologics, is our model of what we look at in the phase two situation really going to apply? And maybe do we need to rethink how we study biologics? Well, it's very hard to know. A lot depends what the standards are going to be. Some of these biologic therapies don't seem to have as much ability to cause response rates Whether or not that's really that different from cytotoxics or not, I don't know. My personal bias is that the definition of a biologic versus a cytotoxic is at best a shade of gray. And Neil Rosen, one of my laboratory colleagues, gave me the best definition I've heard of yet for a biologic or a targeted therapy, so to speak, which is any therapy that was invented after 1998. (laughs) Uh, That It's basically become a term that we use for drugs that we're inventing on the basis of the biology and biochemistry that we understand today, but the older so-called cytotoxics were invented on the basis of the biology and biochemistry that was understood at that time. And what we're finding is that they're not what we had hoped they would be, that we had hoped that most of these anti-VEGF or anti-EGFR strategies, especially in colorectal cancer, but we could say the same about hepatocellular and other GI tumors, we had hoped that these were going to replace what came before it and radically improve the options for patients. What we're finding is that in most circumstances, they don't replace, they add to. It's the fallback position if you can't beat them, join them. In hepatocellular, it looks like it will have single-agent activity that will be useful in its own right. But it's important not to get too caught up in the hype and realize that this has a modest advantage and is still far less than what we would have hoped for from the so-called biologics. We had hoped for long-term non-toxic disease control, and we can't pretend that we have that for the vast majority of these patients. I want to you know, get your take on a bunch of the presentations in colorectal cancer, but just sort of taking a step back, you know, what was your overall impression of the meeting from the point of view of colorectal cancer research? I thought it was a very sobering meeting. I thought that overall there were a fair amount of negative data or a fair amount of minimally positive data, and that a take-home message from the meeting is that we haven't come as far as we thought we had come. We're not moving as fast as we need to be moving or perhaps thought we were moving. And that a lot of things that seemed like really good ideas need to be carefully examined and re-examined. 
there were certainly some positive pieces of information to take forward, and we'll highlight those. But in order to be fair to ourselves and our patients, we've got to critically look at the information with an open mind and keep it in the context of what we might have expected and what, in fact, we're seeing. 